the views and comments expressed on the Space Show by its guests, callers, and listeners belong to them. The Space Show and its hosts serve only as a platform and are not responsible for others' comments or views. All topics discussed on the Space Show are primarily for educational purposes. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Not Good morning, everybody. It is morning West Coast time, uh, which is where the space show is located in Las Vegas. And thank you for tuning in. I'm your host, uh, David Livingston. And uh, we have a, another program tonight with a guest who's been, I mean this morning, with a guest who's been on before, Paul Szymanski, on one of my favorite and my personal top topics for the space show, which deals with national security space and uh, what we're doing in space that may or may impact all of our lives in everything since our economy and so much of our lives run through space right now. So we'll get to uh, Paul in, in just a minute. And uh, if you are not familiar with Paul, please read his bio that is up on the on the website. Um, don't forget that uh, we are a 501c3 nonprofit with uh, one giant Leap Foundation, and uh, we're listener-supported. So uh, we hope you like our program. If you're listening, you probably do like our program. Please do support us, and uh, you can do so through PayPal and uh, also Zelle. If you use Zelle, we have a special email for Zelle, david at onegiantleapfoundation.org. And if you wish to mail us a check, it too is made payable to our parent, One Giant Leap Foundation, and it mails to Las Vegas, and that address is on our PayPal button along with the Zelle email address in the upper right corner of our homepage. Um, and then, in addition, we have sponsors and uh, advertisers. Uh, so you can be a sponsor for uh, our program. You get the banner ad running across the homepage, which you can change whenever you want. And you get promo messages uh, that I read on the air. Um, Northrop Grumman is a sponsor, AIAA. Helix Space in Luxembourg the National Space Society, Celestis, the Astrox Corporation, Dr. Ben Arroyo with his great lunar books, and the Space Foundation, plus John Jossie with his uh, terrific blog, which he also posts a lot uh, on the Space Show blog, Space Settlement Progress, which, which really does cover the cutting-edge tech on getting off this planet and living in space. And uh, you can be a sponsor, and if you're interested, sponsorships run $500 a year. Uh, that includes all of what I just talked about. And email me for more information at drspace, D-R-S-P-A-C-E, at thespaceshow.com. Um, there's a couple of other things on our website, but I want to get to our guest. So uh, I'm going to skip them for the time being. Uh, but do check them out and uh, check out our store. 
And uh, do remember that we're listener-supported, meaning those of you that are listening to this show, you're the ones that support us and keep us going and give us great guests like uh, Paul, who you're going to hear from in just a minute. So Paul is a national security space uh, expert. He has been on the space show before. He has an expertise in space warfare and how you might win a war in space. He has a brand new book out. I think it's about two weeks old. The Battle Beyond, Fighting and Winning the Coming War in Space. You can find that at Amazon, Walmart, Barnes & Noble, wherever you want to buy your books. His full bio, as I said, is on our website, so you can read about him. Uh, we want to talk to Paul and welcome him back to the space show. And congratulations on your new book. How are you doing? And Happy New Year for 2024. And I, I hope it's a year where we're not fighting a war in space. Uh, welcome back to the show. Well, good morning. Uh, I hope everyone is doing well, uh, and it's not too much bad weather across the country. I'm here in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico. It's bright and sunny, and I'm looking at uh, all the snow on the mountains. So uh, I'm enjoying it. We uh, we do get a little snow sometimes on the top of the western mountains in Las Vegas, but it disappears rather quickly. It, it's not like the east coast or New Mexico. So Right, it sublimates. It goes direct to a gas. Yeah. You never see it melt. <laughs> no, you just, the next morning it's not there. You wonder where the hell it went. So um, to start off with, why don't you give us a working definition of what a war in space is? Is it shooting down satellites? Is it stormtroopers up there like we see on TV and in the movies. What is a war in space? Well, first, uh, let me get a little introduction to myself. Uh, that um, this, uh, in 2024, it marks the 50th anniversary of me uh, helping the United States government fight space wars. And uh, so I've done it all, all the way from the Pentagon to uh, the Space System Center uh, and the West Coast and the Air Force Research Labs. Uh, that means um, I've been on 12 funded space weapons programs, and five different uh, what they call the satellite inspector programs that can do all kinds of crazy stuff, and probably 40 or 50 uh, classified um, space weapon studies over those times. And, you know, over my career, I've had like 86 different security clearances, uh, but they all timed out 11 years ago, so I'm not going to tell you anything classified. I just sort of know where the skeletons are buried in, in, in some sense. Uh, so it, it, there's a lot. Um, well, if you look at, um, uh, let's say, the, the war in Ukraine and so forth, and you've got, um, uh, I think last year there was, uh, in the news, there was a uh, incident, whatever that means, between a uh, Russian and American submarine in the Sea of Japan. And um, since there was no, you know, CNN news reporter under the water, you know, taking pictures or whatever, you never know what that meant. And you can go to, let's say, uh, the CIA headquarters in uh, McLean, Virginia, and they have all these stars on the wall of agents who, who died in the line of duty and all, but you never know what that was all about. Uh, and countries are just like children. They love, it. they would do anything they want if they can get away with it from their parents, the parents being their own citizens, United Nations, and so forth. So I use those examples because space is exactly the same way. 
It's an obscure environment, um, tens of thousands of kilometers away, very difficult to directly image. Um, space weapons don't have big red stars painted on the side of them, you know. And you wake up one morning, and it's like, well, gee, my satellite's not working anymore. Well, let's see now. Uh, did it break like my computer broke last month? Did uh, solar flares somehow increase, uh, you know, the radiation? Um, was it human-caused but unintentional? Someone just accidentally got too close or debris or something like that? Or was it human-caused, and what was the intent? You know, is it intentional? So that's very difficult to do. So I, what I'm kind of emphasizing is the obscurity of space, which one can consider a problem, but also consider it a benefit because you can show intent and resolve and will on each other without going to, you know, some sort of general war on the ground. And countries love to keep it quiet uh, because, you know, there's things like uh, in World War One. I'm told, like, the British government didn't want to go to a uh, war with Germany. You know, it was just another Franco-Prussian war. But the yellow journalism sort of forced them into, oh, well, the Germans are bayonetting babies and this and that, you know. And same like the Falklands Islands. I mean, did Britain really care about them? So, unfortunately, there's maybe a good aspect of governments communicating to each other without people finding out. And and that's what happens in space. And there's been, there's been uh, space weapon systems for 50 or 60 years. They were old when I started. There's been um, at least 11 space wars or incidents since the 1960s. I can go in details to some of that, but uh, I, I know I I forgot your question. So um, <laughs> does that start to answer it? Uh, you started to. So I I need a working definition of what a space, oh, space war would be. Yeah. Um. So there's many ways to mess with somebody, and you can. Um, uh, attack the satellite, you can attack the ground uh, receiver of the satellite or the link between it. You can um, uh, maybe get uh, uh, some sort of cyber tools inside, uh, you know, printed uh, circuits or something like that that go into the satellite years later. So there's many variables of that. So how you define space war, yes, you don't have guys with lasers up there, you know, shooting at satellites. Um, there's other ways, too, of um, economic uh, sanctions. is sort of a space war where well, we're not going to allow him to get certain key uh, technologies that he can put in his satellites uh, uh, later on. Uh, there's just a lot of, for example, uh, I knew the uh, Navy captain who was in charge of Schwarzkopf's um, Intel staff, you know, Desert Storm years ago. And he told me that General Schwarzkopf purposely put uh, the French forces on the leftmost of the left hook to um, inspire uh, the French to turn off their spot imagery satellite so the Iraqis couldn't detect the left hook. You know, that uh -huh. uh, France owned this satellite. Uh, so that's kind of a diplomatic attack, economic attack. Uh, you know, I've heard things like, um, well, in order to deny an adversary the ability to image the battlefield, 
let's buy up all the pictures of the battlefield, you know, legally from the commercial operator and he can't sell it anywhere else. You know, so are, are all those attacks, well, yeah, they get the job done because space is 100% information. It's generating imagery and navigational and weather and transmitting that information. So it's information warfare. Um, so if you're, you're not exactly attacking the satellite, you're attacking the mission that the satellite does. You know, oh, it's an imagery satellite. So we want to deny the adversary imagery of the battlefield of this resolution or, or less over these latitude longitude coordinates over the next 72 hours, you know. You go figure out how to do that within the rules of engagement, laws of armed conflict, and, and, and so forth. And, oh, by the way, your mission is to deny imagery of the battlefield, so you better deny it from the drones, too. So you're not attacking the satellite, you're attacking the mission. Now, ultimately, you're not attacking the mission. You're attacking the adversary commander's mind that is using that information, trying to decide whether to attack left or right. So, you know, to define a space war doesn't necessarily mean all this uh, space debris floating around up there. And I have a briefing. I developed 94 ways to attack satellites without creating debris. And the favorite thing is cyber warfare and, and stuff like that. So, um, you know, when we tried to deny spot imagery to the Iraqis was that space war, uh, you know. Now, I can describe later on, if you want, um, in 2014 when the U.S. attacked uh, Russian uh, navigation satellites, and I could mathematically prove that happened. Uh, was that a space war? Um, I don't know. You know, months later, one of our GPS satellites sort of failed in the same manner. Did they counterattack? Or was that sort of um, showing resolve and intent? And there wasn't any way for the Russians to attack back, except they attacked the American banking system afterwards. So all of that is a very complex thing. And so maybe it's not traditionally like, oh, I have these tanks and I shot and blew up your tank, you know, on the terrestrial battlefield. There's more subtlety to it. And if you're fighting just information war, you're just trying to deny the information. And that's something that I think the Space Force doesn't fully understand yet, is that uh, there's no colonies in space you're trying to defend. The whole point of the Space Force and weapons or military systems up there is to support the combat on the ground in one way or the other with information or denying information to your adversary. Um, so, you know, we, we're not up there attacking the International Space Station and stuff like that. So I guess it's what I'm saying is a more subtle thing. It's something that you don't even know it's happening you don't even know why it's happening. Uh, you know, what's the adversary intent? Uh, let's say you're at war in the Western Pacific with China or something on the ground, and one morning you wake up and your satellite stopped working. Well, you know, did a micrometeorite hit it? Uh, oh, it's those Chinese. They must have done it. Well, maybe it's the Russians or the North Koreans trying to stir the pot, you know. So it's just all of these kind of more political things and who said that 
one of the famous um, uh, military uh, theorists said, you know, uh, uh, all warfare is politics by other uh, means, Clausewitz, I think, or something like that. So you have to, I've realized, and I'm blah, blah, blah here, but I've realized at my very advanced age, um, you're really not fighting the war, you're fighting the peace. You're fighting the geopolitical realignments that happen afterwards. And so that's kind of difficult to figure that for space. But I, I don't know. Did I answer it? Uh, yeah, you did. But um, what about the strategies to de- to defend the tools of the information gathering? So uh, are there effective strategies? Is there Are there effective hardware strategies uh, for defense? Because you didn't mention defense at all, because I'm assuming – uh, our people entrusted with our security uh, are working to defend uh, our systems and our imaging and our information gathering. I, at least I would hope so. Well, yes, and they certainly use that terminology, you know, space defense, space offense, and, and things like that. Foundationally, though, uh, you're talking about hypervelocities in space. And if someone really wanted to take out your satellite, you can't have 20 feet of concrete between you and the guy coming at you. And even at hypervelocities, it's not going to help you. You cannot armor plate your satellite so it's it's defended. And and they you know they sort of fantasize of oh I see this anti satellite ASATs are called are coming at me. I'm going to maneuver out of the way. Well, it just appears to me. The guy coming at you is still pretty far away. He sees you maneuvering. He has to change his trajectory by, you know, a millionth of a degree or something to change his, his you know, uh, path. Right. And so you really can't get away from it. Now, and people talk about, oh, well, we're going to use uh, Skylink, you know, and 10,000 satellites and stuff like that. But it's still kind of um, very linear tactical thinking. Because you don't have to take out every one. Um, you know, I think like Starlink has um, automatic uh, separation algorithms. If two satellites get close, and it seems to me you can do a cyber attack and insert a negative sign instead of a positive sign in that algorithm and make all of them smash into each other. You know, people are are so clever, especially when they're about to die. And you can sit there and say, oh, I've got it all figured out, you know. And that's the first step to defeat is arrogance, thinking, oh, yeah, I know where everything is and what's going to happen. And I'm superior. And, and there's so many instances in history where a theoretically inferior force beat uh, a superior force. And that's even easier in space because you really don't know what's coming off and you don't really have much experience in it. And who knows? So. um it would seem to me then that a space war is almost perpetual, um, given that we have espionage and stuff going on on the ground all the time, trying to give us false information, block our information, whatever. So there, it's probably being done in space most of the time, too. Is that correct? Uh, yes. Um, the favorite thing is what's called uh, rendezvous and proximity operation, RPO. Uh, we can call them inspector satellites, and satellites get up close to each other. And everyone on the block has to have their own inspector satellite. So 
you know, Russia has theirs, and the French complain about them getting too close to their spy satellites. Uh, the Chinese, and I can go into details, have a lot of them, you know, some with manipulator arms and all this. Um, the U.S. proudly announced the launch of the fifth and sixth one a year ago of their own inspector satellites. I've been on five different programs. So um, I'm sure all of those satellites are very active, going around looking at uh, Russian satellites just to see what's happening in the Ukrainian conflict, maybe monitor the signal traffic, you know, signals intelligence, looking at which way the beam is pointed uh, so that, you, you know, uh, or the... Um, the imagery so you know which target is particularly interested in. And I am sure sort of poking, probing, maybe messing with it, uh, maybe, for all I know, um, actually uh, disabling other people's satellites. And the government will never admit it happened because they don't want to appear weak. Uh, so, uh, yeah, there's this cat and mouse game going on in space, much like... You know, in the 60s and 70s, you had Russian destroyers cutting off American destroyers and sometimes hitting them. Who knows if it was accidental or non-accidental. And so, you know, everyone's pushing, probing, you know, U-2 uh, aircraft overflying Russia and, and things like that. You just don't sit there and do nothing. And, and that's true in Ukraine. That's true in the Middle East now. Um, you know, uh, brinksmanship and stuff. So I'm sure it's happening. Uh, in space, too. Uh, <clears throat> you have an initial email question from Todd, who's in San Diego, and he says, um, most of us uh, believe that a space war would be something like uh, maybe North Korea setting off an EMP that destroyed a large part of our power grid and equipment or shooting down our GPS satellites so the government says they have a plan of rapid replacement so that it's futile to shoot them down because they can get them back up real quickly. But we don't hear the kinds of things that you're talking about. Uh, do you discount the really big events like an EMP attack or actually trying to shoot down or destroy our GPS satellites or something more for this other stuff that you wouldn't necessarily hear about. We clearly would hear about it if our GPS satellites were knocked down or if there was an EMP. Well, certainly um, that can happen. Um, now, let's say North Korea. I think they have nukes. They have satellites they're launching and all that. They could send off an EMP. I personally think it's such a big deal. The biggest thing of the century to blow up a nuclear weapon, you wouldn't waste it on something that wasn't particularly noticeable. <laughs> you want a big flaming hole in the ground because you're going to be suffering the consequences. So if uh, I don't know how many nukes they have, but you think they want to do something more dramatic. Now, you could do that, but then you're messing with everyone else's satellites. And, you know, I think the... Uh, was it Starfish or some of those 1960s uh, nuclear tests we yeah, did? Starfish Prime, uh, yeah. Uh, destroyed a whole bunch of satellites months later. So everyone kind of understands that. Now, when I started out in the 70s in, in this, um, 
AMP was really big. Nuclear hardening was really big for satellites. And you'd have to have these specialized, very expensive parts and stuff like that. So for decades, that went on. And I used to work those programs. I don't know what they're doing lately, though. It, it, you almost get the impression that they've sort of uh, backed off on that. Uh, so that that certainly is a concern. Um, there's, you know, a lot of concerns, you know, destroying our power grid and, and stuff like that. Um, so that's a possibility. What would be the consequences? Let's say, uh, okay, North Korea did that. So are we going to go nuke them? And is it worth it to North Korea? <laughs> Especially making China and Russia mad at them, too, uh, for messing with their satellites. So that's like maybe too gross uh, a technique, I would think. And then the question of uh, satellite replacement, yes, there's big programs on that uh, here at Air Force Research Lab in uh, Albuquerque, and they've demonstrated that and all. The trouble with a lot of that is my simulations have shown a space war is over with in 24 to 48 hours. And I, I have software I had developed for me that does all the orbital dynamics, and I took 100 random space objects, you know, random meaning some live, some dead, and said match the orbits of another 100 random space objects. And I think it was like 96% of those match the orbits in 24 hours, you know, with reasonable uh, fuel and, and stuff like that. So if you have a really serious space war, and I don't think Space Force is thinking that. They keep thinking tactically. But if you have a really serious war, it's going to be over within 24 hours. And so, oh, well, let's relaunch this satellite. It's like it's too late, I think. And you can't launch enough of them, uh, you know, especially the GPS and stuff like that. So, yeah, that would hurt us. I mean, if you really think about it, if we're at war in the Western Pacific and they take out our space capabilities, you're almost to the point of, um, well, if you fought in space, there's no sense fighting on the ground. I mean, our carrier battle groups, are they be able to do something in the Western Pacific if they don't have satellite communication to communicate back to the United States, if they don't have imagery to see what targets, uh, signals intelligence to detect whether uh, anti-aircraft batteries and radars are to be able to um, GPS to be able to move around in the battlefield and, and get around those anti-aircraft batteries and so forth. I mean, you, you almost can't do it. So it's almost like one of these 1960s Star Trek movies where you fight it out in space and whoever uh, loses in space doesn't even bother to fight on the ground, you know. And it gets to the point where there's actual certain choke points in space jumping off points in certain orbits. And if you see an adversary building up his weapons, space weapons, and those choke points, uh, you know, that takes days and weeks to maneuver around. Uh, you could frustrate that buildup, go up there and attack the attackers first, or just go to the United Nations and say, oh, look at this. Any smart adversary who's going to attack the United States is going to take out our eyes and ears in space first, so if you see a buildup in space, uh, that means they're going to attack on the ground, ultimately. You know, and so in some sense, I, I'm being Machiavellian here or something that space wars may be good. There's no reason to blow up Ukrainian cities and kill people off and stuff like that. There's no reason to attack the uh, International Space Station. Um, 
wow. So, um, are we, um, are, I guess I, I'm wondering how strategic we are in planning this. So, uh, you, you have a book and I, and I know you've done programming on, you know, how to fight and win a war in space. So, um, we hear all sorts of things about our, our military today from poor recruitment to, Technical problems, grounded airplanes, no spare parts, this, that, and the other. F-35 gets grounded because of faults and, you know, the list of, of negatives is, is almost endless that, that one can hear if they seek them out. Um, how prepared are we? How, how do you, uh, win a war in space? And your book says the coming war in space. So are you predicting something else for a space war or more of the same? Well, more of the same, but as uh, ask me later about the space wars that's happened. Everyone is getting their own uh, space forces. They knew the bad things that happened. They know that more and more is going to happen. And so it's something that um, has already happened, will continue to happen, and is becoming more and more important in the United States. Now, you know, the problem with um, winning a space war, how do you define winning? Both sides could say they won. On one side, oh, I took out all your imagery satellites. The other guy, oh, no, I took out all your communication satellites. Well, what's more important on the battlefield? You know, that's hard to figure because it's information, and you're dealing with a human mind. You know, if you had, um, like the Army for... 70, 80 years, kind of invented um, operations research, and they can calculate, well, if we blow up this bridge over this big river, we'll delay the adversary forces six hours, and we'll have, you know, 3% fewer casualties, and the war ends five days earlier, or something like that. Well, if some crusty old general in North Korea doesn't get his imagery information, does he really care? <laughs> you know, especially in the Korean Peninsula, it's like, well, there's only three passes through the mountains, and everyone's going to know they're all just coming down through there, you know. And so how do you, you figure the value? Now, uh, you know, value of space. So um, the, the uh, uh, listeners should um, check out um, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Joint Pub 5-0. Uh, and it, it's online. All the doctrine's always unclassified. That's why I blabber about it all the time. Uh, that, uh, it's a genius document and it's how the United States fights wars. And the best part about it is in the beginning, and they say, well, before you, uh, you know, reposition forces and put together courses of action and attack this and that, oh, just start out by writing down what are the war termination criteria. You know, what are the goals ultimately in the conflict? What would make you satisfied that okay, we won, and all that? And so, uh, you know, the surrender criteria essentially for the adversary. So, traditionally, terrestrial conflict uh, is kind of easy. You know, okay, you uh, you know conquer territory, uh, take over his capital, depose the government, destroy his war-making capability. Okay, yeah. In space, where's the capital? Uh, is there territory? Sort of, maybe. Uh, you know, how do you figure who won a space war? And I've got some ideas on that, uh, but you're really talking about an information war and, and stuff like that. So, 
what are the goals? Well, I go back to um, something I think the U.S. doesn't understand at all is you're fighting the peace. You're not fighting the war. And so you're fighting the geopolitical realignments afterwards. And so, okay, um, let's say you have an extra $100 million that year and say, well, should we um, buy a new uh, space weapon system that can take out um, weather satellites, let's say? And or should we take that $100 million and re-equip an army brigade with new tanks? Okay, ultimately, what's more effective on the battlefield and what's more effective in getting your war aims afterwards or your political aims? And so you can kind of figure the uh, the ground combat, uh, taking out a weather satellite. I don't, you know, yeah, they, they they attack wrong and it's more muddy and they get bogged down. And I mean, it's it's hard to figure the value on that. What would you recommend? I put together some software that looks at the flow of information on the battlefield, whether it comes from space or ground, and the value of that information and the human decision-making processes. So that kind of looks at, well, if I take out the information here, I delay it 12 hours, or if I do this, it shows you know some of that. But, you know, ultimately, it doesn't really matter uh, what technologies you have. Wars between human minds. Uh, you know, you've got the adversary commander versus adversary commander in his fears and culture and education and experience and the politicians above him who might shoot him if he does something wrong. You know, all these factors go in. It's all still human factors. And we've gotten over enamored with technology. I mean, think of World War II. I was born right after it. You know, the Germans had the best of everything, you know, the best fighters, uh, jet fighters, and machine guns, and tanks, and, oh, V-2 rockets and all that. Well, what good did that do them? And what good did the superior technology of NATO do in Ukraine, you know? And so, really, conflict is between human minds, and adversary commanders send messages to each other of will, you know, and then the messages are uh, soldier, sailor, airmen, marines, and all that, and, you know, weapons and things like that. But people talk about, oh, this guy, this country's a terrorist, or this isn't. Well, when it comes to warfare, the whole point of the warfare is to terrorize each side into submission, sooner or later, to make them change their mind. Even the ancient Greeks understood this. You know, wars. Uh, it was not like from 10,000 years ago where I'm starving and I got to go and kill somebody and wipe them all out because I need their hunting grounds or something like that. You know, it's all about political realignments. I think they say the last thousand years, every war in Europe, uh, the outcome was change of boundaries. So that's why you have all these ethnic groups in the wrong countries and, and stuff like that, you know. Uh, you have an email from Beth in Denver. And she said if war is between the, the minds of the leaders and the generals and, and the admirals and such, uh, and you've been around these people, how are we doing today? The U.S. has elections and then the elected officials appoint all these people, even from the services. They usually represent the ideology of the people who won the election. Our adversaries don't necessarily have elections, or if they do, 
they're not necessarily real elections, and they have people there that are locked in footstep with the goals of whatever the regime is that's in power. So how do we do in modern times with the mindset and the strategy and the capability of who leads America forces as compared to Chinese or Russian? Well, you could believe uh, the old adage that uh, nice guys finish last. And I've heard uh, national command authorities, you know, president and all that say, oh, we're, we're not going to counterattack in space until we know who attacked us, of course. You know, well, the war is over in 24 hours. And she can sit there and wonder what you're doing and self-deter, uh, except it's almost hair trigger whoever attacks first wins, you know, almost like the old uh, nuclear thing. So, you know, do nice guys finish last? Do absolutist regimes, are they better in the battlefield? Now, uh, I've heard stories. Well, we've sort of seen those experience, like let's say in Iraq, uh, Desert Storm. Um, as soon as you cut off communication to the soldiers, they freeze, you know, because they don't want to get shot. And so I theorize if you've got, uh, you know, one of these uh, hardcore dictatorships kinds of things, the soldiers have less initiative. Uh, so you might even fantasize here that if you're going to develop space weapon systems, um, you maybe should pre-position them to cover the Western Pacific the kinds that take out command and control, you know, in other words, uh, communication satellites, where if you're talking about the Western way of war, the Indo-Europeans are known for independent thought. I remember reading uh, some German general in World War II saying, God, these Americans, they don't even follow their own doctrine. They just go along and, and do whatever they need to do on the battlefield, you know, take the initiative. So maybe if you're fighting a space war for satellites that are optimized for the um, Western theater, you should be going against imagery satellites or something like that. So, yeah, that's a tough one. Who's better at uh, thought processes? Now, if you really want to know, uh, they have a, uh, a map of all the wars uh, that have occurred for the past 5,000 years around the world. I think it's on Google somewhere. And 90% of all those wars for 5,000 years was in Europe. <laughs> they really know how to do wars. And, you know, I mentioned earlier my uh, buddy who um, was uh, Schwarzkopf's intel staff. He says, you know, these um, you know, Kuwaitis and uh, the uh, Saudi Arabians and all that, they really didn't get how you do war. He says, uh, you know, these uh, officers, Kuwaiti officers say, oh, when are the um, the Marines right off Kuwait City going to attack? And they would, Schwarzkopf would tell them, oh, no, that's a feint. You know, we're going to sneak around the back. And he says, they never got it. And other people have told me that. There truly is a Western way of war. And if you really think about it, for getting almost political here, when was the last time... China invaded another country. When was the last time it won a war? Because they're farmers. They're not herders. There really is a big difference on that. And so you could have somebody like Great Britain come in with a few hundred soldiers or 2,000 or something and conquer major parts of China 
100, 200 years ago, you know, along with Portugal and Japan game a real run for their money. There's some people who are just a better culture for it or so. I don't know what to say, but the proof's in the pudding. And there's another amazing map you can see is all the wars Great Britain did one way or the other or little mini conflicts and all that. All countries on earth, uh, except 20 of them, were invaded by Great Britain one time or another. Okay, how many countries were, did China invade? How many countries did all these other countries, you know, get invaded? Uh, so I presume we have a better way. Uh, we might be a little slow, uh, coming out. Now, as far as, uh, excuse me. As far as Space Force and generals, I, I saw another, uh, interesting statistic. I think there was something like seven four-star generals and admirals in World War II. And um, can you guess how many we have now? <laughs> and I think it's like 86 or something like that. So there's a lot of BS. And I guess one problem with humans is we all like to group together and think alike. I think uh, Patton says, he had a great quote, he says, um, if we're all thinking alike, that means someone's not thinking, you know, in the uh, in his uh, staff. Uh, so everyone has this sort of group think, and anyone who counters that doesn't get promoted. <laughs> you know, it's the way we are at. Uh, so it's, uh, let me do a, a thought experiment with you. When was the last time the air war was in doubt for the U.S. Air Force? You know, when it was really tough going for them. Early World War II, not even late World War II. Um, you know, Vietnam, uh, Iraqi conflict. I mean, I, there's been 70, 80 years of easy going for the Air Force. Uh, and the best way you learn is through defeat, not victory. You know, it's like, Victory, World War One. Oh, let's build a Maginot Line. It'll be trench warfare again. You know, they didn't do the French very uh, good. So there's a certain, uh, what is it called, uh, you know, uh, ossification of mentality. And here we're, you know, most of the Space Force is uh, former Air Force. Um, they keep thinking tactically. Uh, oh, this satellite is coming up to me slowly and I'm going to start spinning or shoot back or move out of the way and all that, but not thinking strategically. You know, well, what if there are 50 space weapons coming at me? Can we figure out what the intent is? He trying to do uh, command and control decapitation? Is he just doing a demonstration attack? He coming up to us and stopping like uh, I think uh, the Arabs used to do with Israel. Uh, because Israel would say, oh, we're about to be invaded. Let's uh, destroy our economy by uh, mobilizing this. And then they stop and do nothing. Well, you can kind of do the same with satellites and make them start maneuvering and getting worried and uh, using up their fuel. And, oh, by the way, while you're maneuvering, you just did a space weapon attack on it because it's not useful. It's not dead. But while it's maneuvering out of the way, you can't communicate, you can't do the imagery, you can't do anything. So you, you succeeded in your mission of denying the mission of that satellite. You have another um, email, Charles, Dallas, Texas. 
And he says, uh, <clears throat> who do you consider our primary adversary in space? And is it something we should be concerned about? Many people on the space show, including guests, constantly talk about not wanting China to get to the moon before the United States does for a whole list of reasons. Do you see China and their space program as a risk to the West? And should we be worried about getting to back to the moon before China gets there? Uh, okay, remind me of the second half of that question. So, you know, my entire career, I was taught to hate the Soviets. And they were the U.S. Let me tell you my list of my perception of who's top uh, militarily in space. So it's the U.S. It used to be Russia, but they sort of crapped out in, in the early 90s. They're coming back. It's certainly the uh, number two would be China. Uh, the thing is, is again, my theorization that China's less warlike than Russia. Um, and it would be, uh, you know, willing to do less, even though they have already have attacked our satellites. Uh, but, um, and then past that, um, let's see, maybe France or India. I mean, two years ago, I was, um, spent, uh, a week in Lyon, France at the invitation of the, um, French Air and Space Force. And they proudly told me about their mobile laser blinder that can blind imagery satellites and they tear up a power and damage them. And, and they're, they're talking about a, a satellite inspector program in the next two years going up with the laser on it. And I think Great Britain's talking about that. And so it, it's either France or India. I mean, India did the direct descent anti-satellite and everyone starts with that, but then they have problems with it later. And so I don't know what else they might be doing. Uh, I don't know. Okay, so you talked about the moon. The moon is, is just weird. My entire career in the military space, no one cared about the moon. In the 1970s, I remember NASA came up to the Air Force and said, hey, guys, do you want a, a military base on the moon? And the Air Force sort of like scratched their head and was like, well, I don't know, it's awfully far, far away from the Earth. And they said, no, you know. So nobody ever cared about the moon. But the last five, seven years, oh, they really care about the moon. I mean, there's like, appear to me crazies here in Albuquerque who are talking about putting up cell phone service on the moon. It's like, you're talking about like $50,000 a minute for three astronauts, you know, and they're putting up surveillance satellites on the dark side of the moon. And it's just, what is all this for, you know? If we even put in a colony, which isn't going to happen for 10, 20 years, it's going to be three people, maybe five. Even if there was a Chinese colony and an American colony, you know, they sort of need each other because it's such difficult as circumstances. So what is this big worry about the moon? Now, most people don't know. There's uh, something called the 1967 Outer Space Treaty, and it says... Um, Countries can't uh, own celestial bodies. And a bunch of countries signed that. I will point out over 80 countries never signed that treaty. And I theorized, hypothesized, you can get like Elon Musk who's building a rocket to the moon, and he puts it on one of his, uh, at one point he was building floating sea platforms um, to launch uh, into space. And I think China just demonstrated it. He could um, 
ship off one of these, uh, you know, lunar, um, launch vehicles and, uh, ship it off to one of these countries, you know, their economic zone, one of the countries that never signed the treaty, launch from there, land, uh, you know, boots, astronauts on the moon, and that country declares ownership of the moon and leases it back to Elon for 99 years, you know, like Hong Kong. Um, and then I wonder, I theorize, well, I wonder if China, who did sign that 1967 Outer Space Treaty, if 10 minutes before their takeonauts, they call their astronauts, land on the moon, they just abrogate the treaty. They, oh, okay, we're out of it now, you know, and now declare ownership of the moon. Now, to me, it's sort of like, I don't know what it was, five, 600 years ago, the Pope said the whole Western Hemisphere was owned by Spain and Portugal. Well, good luck defending that, you know. So, yeah, maybe there's some sort of political thing. Maybe it's like us going to the moon versus the Russians in the 60s, and it was kind of an ego thing. And then once we did it, it's like, okay, we're out of here. We didn't really care, uh, you know. And, and you could fantasize, and it'll be true, you know, 20, 30 years from now, a moon economy, and and I don't know about, you know, the um, minerals and resources are going to ship back. That sounds awfully expensive, but... I suppose, um, what do they call it? first mover advantage, you know, first feet there and all that. It's probably more of a political thing now. Um, now, space lawyers tell me, oh, no, you know, uh, a country never signed that treaty is still obligated by it, which I'm no lawyer. It doesn't make sense to me. And they make fun of me saying that, but uh, a former uh, NASA administrator said essentially the same thing a year or two ago, that they're worried about China you know, declaring ownership of the moon. So I don't know. Um, are we greater at risk for space warfare activity with China than anyone else, or uh, maybe with clandestine rogue countries where we wouldn't necessarily know where it was coming from? Well, it is hard to tell where it's coming from. Uh, any country on Earth has smart, uh, you know, teenage hackers or whatever. And the favorite thing nowadays is cyber warfare. Uh, and so they they can hack a satellite, I guess. They have to know, have some knowledge about it. Um, any uh, smart university around the world can build a laser that points at a satellite and blinds it. I mean, I, I have in front of me a handheld laser I bought on um, the Internet, a uh, 7.5-watt laser. And it's, uh, you know, I'll start my furniture on fire across the room in a fraction of a second, you know. Uh, you can put that on a satellite, uh, whatever. I mean, you can even get some of your own, uh, you know, these uh, university satellites going up and stuff like that. So you can kind of play those games. But are you a major player? So let me tell you, you guys probably don't know why there's a Space Force. Does anyone really know why there's a Space Force out there in the ether? Um, well, we, we know the, the reasons that were given in, in Congress, cybersecurity and, and being more capable of, of dealing with space on its own rather than as a subsection of the Air Force were the selling points. Uh, and, um, uh, but if you have something that is a, is a deeper reasoning, uh, we, yeah, I'll give you a real reason. Yeah. But first of all, my, um, my philosophy here, um, the reason you almost always hear 
is the big flashing billboard reason that is emotionally appealing. But the real reason is usually in the sewage running under the billboard. <laughs> Just about everything. You know, because people are easily manipulated. Okay, I was in France, and I say, you know, I used to have all these security clearances, but they all timed out 11 years ago. And uh, I was invited out to France uh, a few years back, and two French lieutenant colonels came up to me and told me why there's U.S. Space Force. According to them, it's been verified by other people in this country. In 2017, uh, we have what's called SIBRS, Space-Based Infrared. It's a missile warning satellite up at Geosynchronous. And China has these um, manipulator satellites that uh, have arms that grab things. And uh, according to them and other people, um, the uh, one of these Chinese manipulator satellites came up to one of our super satellites in 2017 and started tearing it apart. <laughs> now, that's the usual thing. You never know. Well, I doubt the Chinese did that for a reason. I mean, for fun's sake. They must have had a reason. must have been something that uh, the U.S. did before, and the U.S. probably did something in response. But you could just read it in the tea leaves. I mean, around that time the Space Force was established, the uh, you know the Republicans and Democrats couldn't agree on anything, but they all readily agreed. Oh yeah, we really need Space Force guys. This is obvious. So obviously they were briefed. Um, countries around the world know about it, but keep it kind of quiet. Uh, and then they had a funny thing uh, about a year or so ago. I think it was a Fox News uh, personality was interviewing a Space Force uh, general officer. He says, "Well, General Sir, uh, theoretically." If one of these Chinese manipulator satellites uh, attacked our cyber satellite, what would you do? You know, so obviously the press knows about it, and we're fat, dumb, and happy sitting here on the ground not knowing about it, kind of thing. So there's a lot. I again, you know, I could talk about eleven different incidents that's been happening since the 1960s. I'm sure there's multiples of that, you know, because I can kind of, like I say, read the tea leaves. I mean, uh, what was it last year or something? Uh, China had uh, what they called the Badao satellite. It's their GPS uh, navigation satellite. And um, they'd launched it a few years back, and they claimed that it was um, it broke, and it was drifting around the geosynchronous belt. So last year, they took one of their manipulator satellites, grabbed a hold of it, and pulled it out into what they called graveyard orbit. Now, again, this is all in the open press. And they say, oh, yeah, yeah, we're good guys here. Um, and I look at that, and I, it's like, uh, yeah, I've I've been with evil people. I know how they think. Uh, the, the graveyard orbit is plus or minus 300 kilometers uh, above or below geosynchronous orbit. They pulled it to 3,000 kilometers. Now, the uh, fuel is everything in space, most important asset you have. You don't pull it that far away, 10 times the orbit, and you don't do it when uh, you're out of range and it's daytime, and so the uh, uh, U.S. optical sensors can't see as well because of the sun and all that. And, you know, unless you, you don't do all that kind of uh, secretive stuff unless you're trying to hide something. And, oh, by the way, the pulling it out of orbit Two days after the U.S. proudly announced the launch of uh, their uh, fifth and sixth uh, 
GPS, I forget, uh, inspection satellites. So it seemed to me they were getting rid of the evidence. And I theorize, I don't know for a fact, but I've been there, done that, uh, that they faked the death of this Badal satellite years ago. It actually was an inspector satellite drifting around the geo belt conveniently, inspecting other satellites, or maybe had a little weapon on it, who knows. And when the gig was up, and it probably was out of fuel, and it looks like they'd get discovered, they went and hid it in a higher orbit. Now, why would I readily believe such evil intent? Well, 35 years ago, I was in a program to do the very same thing, a spent stage drifting around the geosynchronous belt inspecting satellites, you know. So nothing's new under the sun. There's all this cat-and-mouse game going on, and there's sort of nothing wrong with that. You know, they're communicating to each other. Now, let me tell you what's really wrong with that. Uh, the attack on the Cyber satellite, missile warning satellites should be sacrosanct. You don't get anywhere near them uh, because if some adversary wanted to start a nuclear war, the first thing he would do is take out our eyes and ears in space so we couldn't see which missiles he's launching, which way they're going, the nuclear detonations and all that. So you might give the adversary an itchy trigger finger if you start attacking you know, our, uh, the missile warning satellites or missile warning satellites, and they might start a nuclear war on it. So it, it makes no sense. Now, damn it, we did the same thing, and it made me feel like running out in the desert screaming about the coming nuclear war. <laughs> uh, we've done that in the past, too. So the, I think um, getting back to that original questions about... Um, the general officers, I know them personally. Well, I know 2,300 of them on my, uh, I have 27,000 uh, individuals on uh, LinkedIn, part of my space warfare discussion group. And I was uh, part of the Air Force Research Lab general officer steering group. You know, two, three-star uh, retired generals, astronauts, uh, uh, former assistant secretaries of the Air Force and all that. And they didn't have the slightest idea how to fight a space war. They keep thinking the tactical, where space is strategic by definition. It's like, well, you attack a satellite, the satellite's over the whole Earth, you know. Uh, oh, by the way, you're in war in the Middle East, but you can attack that satellite when it comes over the South Atlantic in some Navy ship, or no one will see you doing it, or over Australia or, or something like that, which has happened. Uh, so... Um, you got to think strategic. you got to think of consequences. And I know these guys. You know, I've been on all these space weapons programs. And they just love the technology, and they're just itching to use it. But it's why are you using it? When do you use it? You're not using to kill the satellite. You're using to support the ground battlefield. And then what are the consequences? Uh, it's like, oh, wow, we, you know, the U.S. has done this for years. We win all the battles and lose the war. We win all the battles, win the war, but we lose the peace. So, oh, look at all this. We won. We killed all your satellites. Look at all this space debris. Now our allies hate us. Or, oh, we beat our chest, and we're so strong in space, and, and now China just defeated us. And some of those countries that are kind of close to China might start sidling up to them, saying, oh, the U.S. isn't as great as we thought. So there's all these consequences. There's these consequences of, one of the things that you're doing when you're fighting a war is training your adversary how to fight you better next war around. So maybe you should hold back some of those space weapons systems. 
maybe you should worry that if you use a, a certain kind of category of system, there'll be all these uh, treaties after the war that will ban its use. So you're you're shaping the post-conflict uh, world on what you're doing. And unfortunately, people are used to war in, uh, on the ground. They're not used to war in space. So space is more political. And you really ought to know that. And, you know, I've been on all these space weapons programs, and they spend billions of dollars on it and all this stuff, you know, equivalent. Uh, and, um, and then the government gets cold feet at the last minute. You know, you have the National Security Council and all that. And I've, I've told them for years, you know, you really ought to have the State Department in on these pr- weapons programs from the very get-go uh, so that they can say, well, why don't you tweak it slightly and it'll be more ex- politically acceptable to us later on, you know. And these, these program managers, no, we, we don't trust the State Department and blah, blah, blah. Well, actually, they're kind of right. I have uh, a gentleman who is an assistant secretary of state, and he says, yeah, I wouldn't trust them either. They never saw a, a space weapons tree they didn't like, you know, one way or the other. They'll negotiate uh, away everything for you. So, so the competence, um, you look at um, technology versus competence. And, again, you know, wars between human minds. Going back to World War II, um, you know, the Allies had 17 times more tanks than the Germans in 1939, beginning of the war. Better tanks, better armor, better guns, you know, Magellan Line and all this. Heinz Guderian, who invented the uh, Blitzkrieg, hadn't even sat in a tank until I think it was like three or four years before the war started. It was all like... Um, you know, young kids and stuff like that. There was no experience in, in true mobile tank warfare. They did the typical blow things off. Oh, they can't go through the Argent's forest, too many trees. And all. I mean, there's all these excuses. Yet it was the biggest defeat in the 20th century, militarily. Uh, you know, Blitzkrieg, they just wiped them all out within weeks. Uh, so why? Better doctrine, better general, not the technology. So who has a better general for space? Gee, that's hard to tell. <laughs> you know, I have a lot of ideas, but, you know, I could be wrong. It's not like we have extensive experience with large space wars. I mean, the U.S. Uh, attacked uh, Russian GLONASS satellites in 2014. That was, I forget, 24 satellites or something like that. But that was all about politics uh, at the time. Um, <clears throat> Karen? Tucson, Arizona, says, David, I'm at work. I can't call you. Um, can you please ask your guest to tell us what the 11 space wars were that he has referenced several times? Uh, would we know about them, or would we have been kept in the dark? Okay, let me go over some of them. I, actually, I have this all in my briefing, so let me see if my old mind can remember the whole list. But it does start out uh, in the 1960s. Um, in the 70s when I started, I went to the um, Federal Communications Commission, Laurel, Maryland, you know, outside of Washington, um, satellite ground site. And their, um, uh, their function is to look for uh, interference with commercial satellite systems and all that. And they, when I went there, they told me about in the 1960s, an American um, communications satellite, unimaginably named ComSat, was jammed for five days off the east coast of the United States. It was totally non-functional. Uh, 
uh, and they could move the antenna and see oh, all the the strongest signals off the East Coast. So they figured it was a Russian trawler purposely jamming our satellite. So that's maybe not a war, an incident, and it's always the, well, why? I don't really know. Let me see the other ones. I remember some of these I can prove. Some of them are conjectural. In the 1980s, neither the Russians nor uh, the U.S. could launch anything into space. For like six, eight months, Every time a missile was launched to put a satellite up, it would fall into the ocean. And it almost looked like a tit-for-tat, each of us taking it out. You know, again, over what reason, I don't know. I can't prove that. Um, You've got um, an incident in the 2010s that I can't talk about, but it is rumored it was started by a drunken Russian colonel. Um, Somebody told me about uh, in the Southeast Pacific, China started jamming some of our meteorologic satellites, you know, don't know why. Uh, the attack on the um, uh, American uh, attack on the Russian GLONASS, their navigation satellites, in 2014, I can mathematically prove that. Uh, the Russians published the date and time, each one of their 24 uh, navigation satellites started blinking out, and I said, well, gee, I'm a rocket scientist. I have the orbital dynamics software. Anyone can do this. I plugged it in and said, well, where exactly were those satellites at the time? Well, every time they came over um, Central Australia, Pine Gap, they would blink out. And it started exactly at 6.30 a.m. local Australian time. And every time one of the satellites came over, it would stop working. And if there was several GLONASS, Russian GLONASS satellites in view of Pine Gap, they would blink out in numerical order, you know, uh, GLONASS 1, 2, 3, and 4. It obviously was intentional. I've been to these places, you know, they come in at 6 a.m. and they get their coffee, and at 6.15 they start uh, testing, and then at 6.30 they push the buttons, you know, and, and start attacking. And you can see it. In all the attacks and counterattacks, like uh, against the Galileo satellites uh, that was happening at the time, there's things, again, I can't prove, but like um, Russia launched a um, a heavy communication satellite that was going to uh, cover the, uh, eastern Ukraine, and it fell in uh, on a Chinese village, the launch vehicle, while Putin was in China, trying to sell uh, space technology. Now, I can't prove that, but this circumstantial kind of thing. So you could see all this back and forth happening for a few months. And, uh, and of course, um, you know, Russia, uh, Ukraine was part of Russia 30-plus years ago. Uh, Russia built the roads and all that. They didn't need the navigation satellites to know how to get around Ukraine. You know, it was a political statement. And it was a statement that wasn't received. Um, see, the thing is, is you have to have a dramatic statement so that the government knows, oh, something really uh, was intentional, and here's the intent, uh, but it wasn't accidental. You know, some people say, oh, that was just solar flares. Yeah, exactly, at 6.30 in the morning and all that. They have to understand that, so it has to be dramatic enough, but still obscure enough so people like me, can't figure it out on the street, you know, kind of thing. So America attacked these satellites. Oh, by the way, 
I was job interviewing at the Pentagon at the time, uh, unclassified environment, and somebody there told me, yeah, we're thinking of attacking Russian satellites. And four days later, the Goliath satellites start blinking out, you know. So uh, the U.S. took out these satellites, uh, cyber-wise, you know, probably, uh, messed with the atomic clock or something like that. And Russia didn't get the message. So they probably, you know, the politicians and all, oh, it was solar flares or something like that. So two weeks later, their satellites zapped out again, I think 18 of them. And so, um, what Russia did, this is a thing that generals don't understand in this country, combined arms, strategy and all. The Russians took the war down to the United States, down to the ground. And they got pissed off about the, the satellites being attacked. So they attacked the American banking system. And you could see that. Uh, you know, it was in the news, uh, five different major banks in Manhattan had uh, tens of millions of bank accounts and stock accounts downloaded. And they said, well, it looks like it's coming from Russian servers. And then a few days later, you don't hear anything more about it. And a week later, Obama is at the negotiating table uh, for the Ukrainian crisis. So I interpret that to mean is that that first space war, major space war, we lost. We lost on the ground. The Russians held back those bank accounts and threatened to put them out into the wild. And Obama caved, and he could do that because people didn't know about it. He couldn't, you know, lose face and all that. And they went to the, the freak, uh minsk agreements and stuff like that, and so the war cooled down for a few years. Uh, listeners, there's still time if you would like to call and talk with Paul. Uh, our phone number is 866-687-7223, and, of course, you can continue sending in email. And uh, Leon is in Houston, Texas, and he says, what is your space warfare group, and can anybody join it for discussion? Yeah, it's um, on LinkedIn. Just link up with me on LinkedIn, you know, and or, you know, uh, contact me through my email and just tell me who you are, what country and organization uh, kind of thing. Uh, actually, I got 27,000 members. I mean, there's over 2,000 general officers. I've got former assistant secretaries of defense, uh, the current secretary of the Air Force, um, 200 some people from the White House, uh, generals, uh, and leaders all around the world. Like, um, uh, I think the secretary of defense of, uh, France and of India. And, you know, I've, um, been in 17 countries around the world uh, at their invitation, allied countries, uh, teaching them how to fight and win space wars, essentially, which I suppose some people tell me that makes me the first original um, space mercenary uh, like Boba Fett, I guess. Or or some uh, the more evil types might think um, uh, Dr. Strange love of space, whatever. Is it a verbal... A uh, space discussion group, or is it all done uh, online, or what? Is it? Uh, just uh, yeah, it's just uh, emails. Email. I say yeah, I say LinkedIn, but that's just how I get them, and I, I do contact them. Um, there's another group there, but yeah, I, I well, um, you know, you can. I do these kind of uh, podcasts sometimes four or five times a week. Um, I might do a. I'm going to do one in a week uh, for my book. 
that's open to everybody. And then maybe after that, I might do, uh, I have a, a detailed briefing and all the doctrine strategies and tactics of fighting space wars and the history and all that. It's like a two hour briefing. And I, I might give that out publicly too, uh, verbally, you know, on some sort of podcast. Um, you have another, uh, email question and, uh, listeners, hopefully I know it's Friday and you're listening at work, but, uh, give us a call and, uh, again, that number, 866-687-7223. Uh, Jack is in Los, Los Angeles and he says, that, are there any documented or suspected warfare attacks against any nation's human spaceflight efforts? Not that I can recall at the moment. I, I, I'm an old guy, 72 years old, so I have stories. And I remember, um, I was at one of these space control conferences, you know, decades ago, um, in Colorado Springs. And that was the, the space, um, U.S. Space Command back then. And, um, it was a general beer, spelled just like the beverage. And he got up in front of the audience of a couple hundred people and he had a, uh, uh, he, he put on a World War II uniform and projected a flag and acted like General Patton, you know, in the movie. Uh-huh. You know, and all that. But I took him aside afterwards and says, well, you know, Rush is on the uh, International Space Station. They helped build it. And all. You had something like the left hook uh, and some uh, cosmonaut is up there with binoculars watching it. What would you do? And his first response is, I'd shoot him. You know, for what that's worth. Now, there's the same general that said, let's all get drunk afterwards. But, uh, you know, that was the old days. I'm not sure you would discharge a gun on a, uh, you know, uh, putting a hole through the, the uh, metal uh, bulkheads and stuff like that. Now, just as an aside, you know, for 20-plus years, I worked with, let's see if I can get this right, the director of the Directed Energy Directorate and Directed Energy Lasers. So I developed my own um, laser, uh, you know, space ray gun that um, use a special 5.8 uh, by 27 round that uh, penetrates the Kevlar spacesuits and the Humbert face mask and all of astronauts, but not metal faceplate or metal uh, bulkheads. And why did I develop? Oh, just for the fun of it, because I could, you know. Uh, not like I'm going up in space and doing it. But as far as actual attacks, now I've heard funny stories. Like on the International Space Station, um, there's something with a drilled hole in it, letting out, you know, oxygen, like a year or two ago. And they never publicly announced it of why. But the Russians claimed it was some female astronaut who wanted to go home or something. I don't know if that's true. But I'm sure there's all kinds of stories out there, but I'm not exactly aware of them. Um. If we, if Musk ever launched a, a mission to Mars, um, do you think it would be left alone or would it be political and, and would be fair game? Do you, do you think that's a risk factor going forward? Human spaceflight, maybe a lunar colony, maybe, you know, people on private space stations. Are they going to be fair targets or are they going to be off limits? It's, um, all the uh, dirty tricks that one can assume the CIA did and that I used to do uh, in the deep blue covert programs I worked with, 
and so they would mess with it if they felt it was politically expedient and they wanted to delay. Yes, I think there's high probability. But, of course, it's got to be covert, non-attributable, uh, you know, that you can't really figure out what happened. Um, I'm sure that would happen when we got more serious uh, going to the moon. I, I mean, I had somebody want my opinion of why are all these things failing uh, landing on the moon, you know, if there's been some sabotage. Well, I don't know, you know. Why did, was it a Japanese one landed upside down? That's quite right. a trick. Uh-huh. So, uh, yeah, but that's, that's normal. Government to government communication. I'm sure the president has all sorts of weird stuff going across his desk several times a week. It's not only space and that people are doing mean things and some of them getting killed for it. And I'm sure there's all kinds of mean things happening in space right now over the Ukrainian conflict. Uh, you know, like what happened to our cyber satellite and so forth. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm not uh, familiar with anything in particular. I just, um, you know, they have these Disney fantasies of colonies on the moon and Mars. And, you know, Mars, the, um, you're going to 99% of the time, you're going to have to live in a cave. You know, the radiation is going to get you. The uh, soil is highly poisonous. You know, it's just, I don't know if it's a viable thing. I mean, it's cool to think to live there. I think people would go crazy after a few months just seeing red all the time and not seeing well, they might already, guys. Well, you, you got that wrong. They might already be crazy to get on the rocket and go in the first place. So, well, I know, you know, <laughs> high testosterone, you're a kid. Oh, yeah, you could do my, this stuff. And that's my, how things happen, and it's got to happen sooner or later. My it's settlement. the same with the moon. You know, it's highly poisonous dust. The astronauts had all, the Apollo astronauts had all sorts of problems with just the dust getting in. Yeah, my and sense. whole... Uh, uh, groups at NASA who study lunar dust <laughs> yeah. because of it. You have a caller waiting, and uh, for those settlement listeners, come on, people, I'm just joking around, so don't come and attack me for saying I'm not this or not that. Uh, hi, caller. Welcome to the program today. Who are you? Where are you? And thank you for your call. Uh, this is John of Fort Worth. Hi, John. Uh, this is a fascinating discussion today. One thing I was thinking about when we're talking about satellites and and all this and and, and conflict is that the the latest uh, actually now the latest announcement two variants of our uh, uh, nuclear gravity bombs the uh, the sixty one dash twelve and that just recently announced dash thirteen are to be GPS guided, whereas all the other uh, strategic <laughs> weapons I've ever heard of were not were specifically not so that no matter what the environment was during a conflict, they would still work, like terrain falling for cruise missiles and stuff. So I'm thinking, would that, would our GPS system really be viable in a, in a nuclear war environment, let's say, or, or, we talk, or would, the, would all the nuclear effects probably knock them out of action? Yeah, that doesn't make sense to me either, but even not a nuclear war, uh, a lot of our GPS-guided munitions in Ukraine aren't working because, well, surprise, surprise, the Russians are jamming them. <laughs> what did you expect? Mm-hmm. You know? So, uh, yeah, sure, I'm all pro-space, uh, and GPS is great. You know, I use it in my car and stuff like that. Uh, but you really ought to have backups, I would think, I would hope. Yeah, I would, I, I, that, that, that aspect just surprised me. Maybe that's part of... I don't know, sort of a, po- a possibility or something that you could use 
uh, or limited earlier phase or something. But it just seemed to me like that's kind of a strange divergence. The other thing you're mentioning, the idea of you know reacting in different ways on the ground. I I I, uh, I have a YouTube uh, channel that I talk about things we can't talk about on the space show because of nonprofit status, among other things. And uh, I I posted a, a, one of my videos right before the October seventh event in uh, Israel was I called horizontal escalation, and I was r- raising the idea that that the the Russians were going to respond somehow. Uh, uh, on that level, because I'd also said that one of the big deterrents to certain Russian actions would be our potential of a horizontal escalation, such as on the seas or something. And so I was thinking, you know, the, the, the relationship between Russia and Iran had been growing quite a bit before that incident, and we know Iran backed that uh, horrible attack. And I'm kind of wondering if that now all those munitions that might be going to Ukraine are now going to Israel, you know, and that sort of thing. So I'm wondering if if that was an example, that, another example of that possibility. Uh, of what munitions traveling or uh, of a horizontal escalation? In other words, they they kind of oh, gave yeah. the green light to Iran to tell your folks to go ahead with your evil plan because it's going to cause a Israeli response and the U.S. will have to respond, protect Israel. So munitions that might go to uh, support that might go to Ukraine now goes to Israel and and, and gives them a little more uh, advantage. Well, the one thing that, you know, I, I used to be a professional liar for 30 years, cover stories, you know, it's called the onion theory, peeling mm-hmm. off different layers and, and stuff like that. And so people try very hard to cover it up. What they don't seem to cover up is simultaneity. Like, this world-shaking event happened now, and three days later another world-shaking event happens and all that. And a lot of it is obvious. So it was obvious Hamas did the attack because... They figured we were depleted in Ukraine. Uh, and then it's sort of true. Suddenly, oh, oh yeah, goodbye, Ukraine, and we're going to start doing this in the Middle East. And as far as astounding escalation, I mean, Russia's putting warships in the Red Sea now. They declared that they would defend uh, Syria from uh, Israeli attacks. I mean, there's all these things happening, and it's a... You know, it's like everyone's robots. This is exactly what Hamas wanted. <laughs> everyone's got to, they use the primitive part of their brain to respond and uh, do exactly what the uh, people intended you to do and so forth. So it's almost, you know, you could model this in some war game. Yeah. Well, just another example of possibilities. But, yeah, it is, like you say, a lot of these things are probably going on, like you say, the jamming of the... Uh, of the uh, uh, of the GPS system to minimize the effectiveness of that was one thing I was always I'd even raised this issue myself is to what degree we train our pilots to cla- in classical you know bombing techniques without GPS since we're so reliant on on JDAM bombs you know it'd be good to make sure everybody's trained to do the basic stuff very well just yeah. in case you know <laughs> I'm uh, I just uh, astounded that. A nuclear weapon has a GPS. I didn't think it had to be that accurate. <laughs> you know, well, the, the idea was, here's the idea, apparently. These are lower-yield versions of the previous bombs. That, the thought was that the original B-61 allegedly had a higher yield, and this was going to be limited to a, a, a lower amount, and I guess collateral damage re- reduction. And supposedly, for some reason, uh, the Pentagon wants to retire our biggest current bomb, the B, uh, was it the B-83, 
and and uh, and they they were supposedly the Congress was pushing back on that at the Armed Services Committees, I guess, and so they're saying, well, we're going to, you know, a couple full up yield version of the B sixty one dash seven, the thirteen will be GPS guided, so we don't need to have a megaton range bomb. And I I'm just like, well, why? I mean, but you know, that's that's the kind of thing I was just re- referring to. And yeah, I, I don't know that. Talk, that means... uh, oh, tactical nukes, and other people talk. Once you do a nuke, it doesn't mean a matter whether it's tactical or strategic. It is strategic, and you're going to have a strategic response. So I don't know if that's true. And again, you're dealing with human minds. You cannot simulate a human mind. You're never sure what the adversary is going to do. And and how many <clears throat> wars have been started by miscalculating an adversary intent? Which goes oh, yeah, even definitely. more in space because it's so obscure. Hey, Paul, I got a question for you. Because uh, John is our resident scholar and updates the space show on what's going on with UAPs and congressional hearings and stuff. Uh, does your uh, in- intelligence work, uh, your contacts, give you any information on the UAP phenomenon that's been going on for a number of years? Yeah, I don't have anything specific. I mean, I was in some of the most classified programs in the country. Only a couple hundred people cleared. The president's not even brief for plausible deniability. And I have no specific knowledge uh, of, you know, aliens and stuff like that. And we used to joke about it. We, uh, when we briefed people in, we had, um, Project Wildflower about how we discovered aliens on the moon, but it was all fake just to, you know, take them out. And we were called um, the Dead Alien Research Center, and the secretary was called Mistress of the Dark. Uh, and we actually had in the official Air Force uh, board the Dead Alien Research Center. Uh, so we played with that. Now, I know um, the people in our program were only invited in. They were the cream of the crop of Air Force officers, stuff like that. And so you'd think they'd be reliable. And I know uh, one of them firmly believed in the uh, Roswell thing, and he was no idiot. So I don't know. But I, I honestly can say I have no specific uh, evidence. I mean, yeah, I can say, oh, yeah, there's billions of stars, and there's probably somebody out there, and whether they visit us or not. And you know, they say, oh, this is the technology we're using. And that part I, I don't really know. I don't think so. You know, we, I would have seen that technology. And then they have, you have to just be a little bit of intelligent. Like, was there some, somebody came out and he talked like a year ago, uh, to the news that, um, oh, I was on these, you know, alien programs and all that. And then you look, he was like a first lieutenant who would never be on those programs. He was at the National Geo, uh, Geospatial Agency. They would never be briefed that. They have nothing to do with space. They're map people. So all of it kind of didn't add up. That's some crazy just trying to get attention. Um, John, do you have any commentary on that before you, you leave us? Oh, 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 I mean on Grush? Well, that, well, he was a little higher than that. I mean, he was a, a, um, a major. But the point is that that I, I think on his thing, remember, that he was he was assigned to the uh, by the UAP task force to look into this. So he was kind of in a level that I don't know, it's hard to know. I, I, it, it, the thing I would find strange about the whole subject from your point of view, I guess, is that for a program that this classified, the degree to which it appears to be leaking is kind of shocking. I mean, supposedly several people have come forward to Congress on this 
uh, you know, I mean, anonymous, in other words, they, the Congress is not giving their names out publicly, I guess, to protect their identities, uh, pursuant to a law that they passed. So why do we know so much about this thing? Because most really deep programs like you're talking about, nobody talks about them. I, you know, I mean, you know, if you see what I'm saying. <laughs> I mean, you know, right? I mean, you don't. You're talking about the real, real programs. Yeah. Well, anything. Like that, yeah. Right. Exactly. I mean, you, you, yeah, these people are talking to people. Now you can say it's a disinformation effort, but it's, it's one that's kind of eighty years old. I mean, what, what's the what's the trajectory of this and its target? You know, that's what's interesting. You know. Well, well it'd be cool if it was true. You know, I love to see it. John, anything else for you? Because we're at the end of the program, so I'm gonna. Well, that'd be it for me. Yeah, I, 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 very, very interesting program. Thank you very much, um, Paul. Have we left anything out? Anything you you want to add or or remind us of or suggest to us or or uh, fill in for us? Well, I'm available for these uh, kind of podcasts and briefings. Like I said, I've done around the world. If anyone has um, an interested audience, okay, and uh, they can get through to you through your. I have your LinkedIn profile address, so. I'll put that in the summary, but that's a good way to reach you. Yeah. Okay. Um, after uh, your book, The Battle Beyond, do you have another one planned? or is? Oh, geez. You know, okay, you guys, this is my parting shot. Do I have five minutes? Yeah, go for it. You guys uh, don't realize what the biggest threat from space is, and that is FOBS, Fractional Orbital Bombardment System. And that's something the Russians, the Soviets invented, in the 1960s, where they have this outer space treaty that says you can't have weapons of mass destruction in space. So they would send an ICBM south instead of north towards America uh, and um, avoid the American defenses and say, oh, it was only a fraction of an orbit. It doesn't violate the treaty, you know. And uh, 2020, uh, the, um, uh, the U.S. came out and said, oh, yeah, now China has FOBs. Now, anything coming out of orbit, um, you know, coming back to the Earth, is at Mach 26 and three times hotter than the surface of the sun. So um, if you have something like that, let's say you had um, two tons of concrete, just facetiously saying that, and China dumped two tons of concrete and all 11 American aircraft carriers one night using 1960s technology, you know, it could happen tonight, 40 minutes, you had something coming in Mach 26, three times hotter in the surface of the sun, 100-foot hole in the hull of the aircraft carrier, you know, the uh, metal edges, the jagged edges gleaming uh, from the heat, uh, this hot object uh, would uh, hit the cold ocean, have a steam explosion, suddenly the U.S. is not a world power anymore. Overnight, we're sea power. We're not a land power. You can't march half a million soldiers across the Atlantic to help defend Europe. The only thing we can do is attack Latin America. We're out of the equation. We've benefited from these oceans defending us for hundreds of years, and suddenly it's, you know, a tomb or something. And let's say China took out our aircraft carriers, uh, took out... Um, our space launch sites, we only have three, uh, and so we can't launch into space and defend ourselves from more of these attacks. China 
controls the whole seas. You know, Mayhan control the seas. Well, no one's been able to do it, but from space, you can control the whole world. And so it, China controls all commerce. All that oil in the Middle East is worthless if you can't ship it out. Any ship that doesn't pay transit fees gets sunk immediately. And suddenly we're like, I don't know, five, six hundred years ago, where sea power doesn't matter anymore. Only land power matters. Who are the two uh, true land powers, if they really wanted to be? China and India. 1.4 billion, you know, people each. You can uh, field 100 million soldiers if you wanted or something like that. So the whole world would change if we don't, you know, figure out defense and space. And, you know, China can do the same routine that they did last year to pull that satellite out of the orbit. And they can say, oh, we're going to collect all this satellite junk and dead satellites and put it in solar furnaces and point it to the sun and melt it as flag and dump it over the South Pacific. And we're good guys, you know, only they dump it elsewhere. Uh, so the I did the studies, some of the original studies in the 1980s of space-to-earth weapons, and there it went up to the National Security Council and all. It was very effective, Warsaw Pact uh, kind of thing. So I'm writing a novel on that. Uh, I've got uh, five or six other books uh, in process, probably in the next month or two. Uh, this Battle Beyond, I've got uh, supplemental details. I've got one on uh, Sun Tzu and the Art of War, um, several others coming down the pike in the next year. Where is the U.S. on developing FOB technology? I don't think we have it at all. The problem is is um, we screwed up in hypervelocity. China has it. Russia has it. Russia's been using Ukraine. We don't have it. I don't know what went wrong. A pound of lead, trial everything at 12,000 feet per second, is equivalent to a pound of TNT. So these weapons don't have explosives. And even the ones, like in Ukraine, that are launched from an aircraft, they actually go up into space and then come down. Last year, I have a video. Several people have told me, I don't know if it's true or not, this is open source, that there is a command center in Kiev, 400 feet underground, you know, 40-story building, with NATO and Ukrainian, you know, uh, officers in it. And Russia used one of its, probably Kinzhal or something, hypervelocity weapons and took it out. Went 400 feet underground with this thing. The ground must liquefy. And I, uh, I think I have a video of it because they had, you know, cameras around the city and they said, John, one night the whole city lit up like it was daylight and you could see it coming down. Not a meteor, you know, it's coming straight down. You could see a flash a fraction of a second before it hits the ground where it's making a final maneuver. You see the time scale on the, the videos. It's still the same, you know, uh, second. And then it, it hits the ground and there's the huge flash and takes it out. So that is the biggest threat. Now, that's a threat today with conventional weapons to the carriers, and you're talking about, something that's sitting there in this big flat ocean, you know, you can't hide. If it's going Mach 26, it's not like you can maneuver out of the way, and you cannot shoot it down. It already is falling down. Uh, so instead of one 100-foot hole, you have 20 10-foot holes from debris or something, but I don't know if there's any defense on it. So somebody ought to be really thinking about that. 
Um, that's a nice, pleasurable way to start the weekend and to end our show. Yeah, my parting shot. <laughs> Your parting shot. happened tonight. A parting or shot. Or take out the White House, too. No defense. No, 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 you don't want to say that. In 1960s technology. You don't, you don't want to say that. They'll, they'll come knocking at your door. So. Oh, hopefully not. It's not like I'm developing it. <laughs> yeah, it's not like I even understand it. Uh, Paul, I want to thank you very much, and uh, we'll stay in touch and hopefully have you back on and, and uh, much more frequently than what we did before. And uh, best of luck with your book sales. And uh, if something comes up and you want to share with us, please uh, let me know, and we'll, we'll do it right away, okay? Okay, thank you uh, for the opportunity. Have a great weekend. Thank you, and listeners, you all of you have a great weekend. And remember, as we like to say, keep looking up and um, keep it safe and stay healthy. And uh, goodbye from Paul David and the Space Show.